Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's co-host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio, and Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapeutics. I'm really fortunate to be joined today by Patrick Klein, the SVP of Translational Research and Development at Rhythm Pharmaceuticals. We're going to be talking today a little bit about precision medicine, obesity, as well as the future of sequencing and medicine as a whole. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Alok. Pleasure to be here. Look forward to the discussion. Awesome. Well, us as well. And maybe to kick us off, would love it if you could perhaps start out by sharing a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I come from a science background I was at the bench. I started in academia studying human genetics. And that's really sort of been the lens through which I've you know, looked at a lot of my pharma career since then. So I actually um, come from the UK originally. I did my PhD in human genetics. And that was in sort of the 80s and 90s, my postdoc days at Columbia University. I was really working at a time where really starting to define the link between human genetics and human diseases. So it was an era where there was a lot of cloning of disease genes, cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Those genes were being cloned using uh, positional cloning techniques. And really this idea that we could base therapeutic discovery and development on the basis of disease was really emerging. The idea that we could tie therapeutic discovery and development directly to the cause of disease. That was really a driving force that that really started then. Then, you know, if you sort of fast forward a little bit to around 2000 and the completion of the Human Genome Project in 2001, really the hurdles for defining that gene-disease relationship were really sort of diminishing and the speed at which we were identifying genes really accelerated. And as that was going on, I was working in the metabolic disease field as well as the oncology field using genetic approaches to launch drug discovery approaches. In fact, I worked on some of the genes that I now work on at Rhythm Pharmaceuticals. So I'm sort of at Rhythm Pharmaceuticals, completing an arc of, you know, maybe 20, 25 years when I first started working on some of these genes. So it's, that's very satisfying and compelling for me. I think where we've moved now is not only using sort of the basic research discoveries of genetics to launch new drug discovery programs, but really integrating human genetics in precision medicine approaches to treat human diseases and, and develop drugs in clinical trials in a targeted precision mechanism. And what I mean really is around the notion of using genetic approaches and other biomarker approaches to segment common diseases into sort of segments that are really driven by different disease mechanisms and really target therapeutics to those patients that will most benefit from the therapeutic. And that's the sort of segue into rhythm. That's really where we're focused is really targeting a therapeutic to the fundamental mechanisms of disease and therefore gaining efficacy and gaining safety through that approach. Wonderful. And you know, just for our audience's sake, when you evaluate disease as a whole, you know, I think some say there's about 10,000 diseases that we know of so far. What portion do you think are genetically defined versus environmentally caused, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, that's a long discussion and it's a complicated topic. You know, I think of it as a spectrum. So you know, there are some diseases that are 
typically rare that are clearly strongly genetically driven. So, you know, some of the ones I mentioned, cystic fibrosis, Duchenne's, Huntington's disease, Gaucher's, those have very strong influences by single genes. And some of the diseases that rhythm studies have those equally strong, you know, monogenic effects. There's essentially a gene which is defective and it leads invariably to the development of a disease. If I moved all the way to the other end of the spectrum, there's been huge progress in defining the genetics of common diseases and studying the genetic risk factors that lead to common diseases like cardiovascular disease, obesity. And all of us share these genetic risk factors. You know, typically, you know, twin studies, other approaches have defined the sort of genetic component of common diseases around the sort of 50 to 70% typically, some higher than others. And, you know, when I look at the totality of that, I think of it as a spectrum. You know, we all have genetic risk factors to diseases, and whether we develop those diseases depends on our environment, on our upbringing, on our diet, behavior, habits. But it's also sometimes impacted very strongly by genetics if we are, you know, unfortunate enough to inherit these very strong genetic drivers of disease. You know, it's a spectrum. And we think of rare diseases as, you know, unlikely to affect us. But, you know, we need to remember that there's thought to be about 7,000 rare diseases that affect about 20 to 30 million Americans. So as an aggregate, rare diseases are actually a very significant part of the healthcare problem that, you know, roughly 10% of us will suffer, you know, from some rare disease. And that's probably an underestimate because one of the, the issues with rare diseases, they tend to be underdiagnosed. Yeah, for sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, I think it also brings to mind around sort of how precision medicine has sort of come to the forefront now as a development strategy, right? And given the arc of your career, right, being able to work in an academic setting on a certain set of genes and now being able to do it from a therapeutics perspective, would love to just hear maybe a little bit more around that broader philosophy and approach from a pharmaceutical industry standpoint, how you've seen that change over the past few decades. Yeah, I mean, you know, the obvious overarching change over the last 20 years or so has been the cost of genetic analysis, right? So, you know, often quoted number is, you know, in the billions of dollars it costs to sequence the first human genome. Probably a little bit of an apples and oranges comparison because, you know, obviously there was a lot of investment in the basic infrastructure to do the first human genome. But, you know, realistically, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to sequence that genome. We're now, you know, roughly speaking at the $1,000 level. And for, you know, focused genetic testing of genes, you know, we're down to a few hundred dollars. And that's really been transformational for the pharmaceutical industry because it's now realistic to be able to test systematically across, you know, dozens of genes or even the whole genome, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of individuals. And so, you know, whether it's in basic research or in clinical development or ultimately commercially, it is feasible to test thousands of patients to find those needles in the haystack, those very rare patients who might have mutation that really make them suitable for a very specific treatment. And that's really the basis of, you know, not only Rhythm Pharmaceuticals, but many other companies there with targeting therapeutics to very specific genetic variants. I mean, it's been transformational. I think, you know, where that goes in the future is is something we can talk about. You know, we certainly see further cost reductions. I think 
you know, there's also sort of larger questions of how testing is reimbursed, how it's regulated, how it's standardized globally, which are really important drivers for really broadening access to testing in developed markets and in undeveloped markets also to really expand access to genetic testing precision methods. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how sort of both the aspect of diagnoses and testing and like patient populations, especially in sort of quote unquote rare diseases are so inextricably linked, right? And how I think over time, things like awareness and medicines being delivered for that specific indication, right? End up just magically increasing the patient population. That's a really good observation because I think that's one of the main challenges we we face is building awareness around genetic testing. So, you know, I spend time in oncology and, you know, rhythm where I'm now is in the metabolic space. And it's interesting to compare those, you know, genetic testing in oncology is now routine, right? It's expected if a cancer patient comes to you that a genetic test is part of that diagnosis. And it's really driven by the fact that there's a lot of understanding that you know, cancer's behavior vary depending on the genetic mutation spectrum. And also that there are a lot of therapeutic options that are driven by those genetic tests and that, you know, the right therapy needs to be given to the right patient with the right genetic profile. Contrast that with, you know, an area like metabolic disease, the initial treatment is, you know, diet and exercise. And that may work well for some patients with sort of general, you know, more environmentally driven obesity, but really it does not address the basic cause of obesity for some of these patients with rare mutations. And getting pediatricians, pediatric endocrinologists, obesity clinicians to really think about genetic testing as an approach, particularly for those patients that may look a little different in the sense that, you know, patients that have very early onset of disease or ones that have really a driving, unrelenting hunger that we call hyperphagia. There's these patients that are really quite distinct. You know, they're not your typical teenage kid developing obesity as they're driven by a non-ideal diet and lack of exercise. These are distinct patients that can be identified clinically and that really need genetic testing in order to really provide them with the right therapeutic. And so what you touched on is it's building that awareness and it's providing access to testing. It's providing, you know, lowering the hurdle for testing and that's providing the right technology, the right gene panels to test. It's providing reimbursement for testing and it's raising awareness amongst the treaters and the patients that they should think about testing. So, you know, with that, you know, would love to learn a little bit more about some of the programs you're most excited about at Rhythm and some of the approaches you all are taking in that domain. Yes, our principal program is based around a molecule called cetmelanotide. And the molecule, which is a uh, agonist of a receptor called the MC4R receptor, which acts in the hypothalamus, which is a central controller of appetite and energy regulation in the body well-established, you know, 20, 30 years of work has gone into defining the MC4R pathway, as we call it, as a central regulator of appetite and energy. And cetmelanotide, our molecule, specifically agonizes the MC4R receptor. And there are patients that lack sufficient endogenous ligand for that receptor, which is alpha-MSH. And we use genetic strategies as well as others to define the patients that lack sufficient alpha MSH and might benefit from cetmelanotide treatment. 
And so, you know, just as I was describing earlier in general that there's a spectrum of genetic involvement in diseases, there are some patients that have mutations in particular genes in the MC4R pathway that essentially completely lack function of that pathway. And our drug setmelanotide, which is branded as Insivory, is approved in some of those indications already. So there's patients that lack POMC, which is the precursor of alpha-MSH, which is the natural ligand for the MC4R receptor. There's leptin receptor patients. The leptin pathway is upstream of the MC4R receptor. And patients who lack the leptin receptor also benefit from setmelanotide treatment. And our drug is already approved in those populations. And what we're really doing is, with that proof of concept of patients that clearly benefit from it, is exploring the rest of the MC4R pathway, other genes that act in that pathway, and finding patients that have variants in them and testing setmelanotide in those. And so we're actually looking at overall about 36 genes that are involved in the MC4R pathway. And that across all these genes, there are quite a large number of patients who have mutations that mean that that pathway doesn't function as well as in a, a lean individual. Yeah, so we're exploring, you know, set melanotide suitability for, you know, other patients with other variants in these uh, 36 genes in the pathway. And so much like the approach in oncology of, you know, defining the initial patient group that will benefit strongly from the targeted therapy and then exploring larger populations with other mutations, we're taking a similar tact with setmelanotide and patients that have deficiencies in the MC4R pathway. That's helpful. And, you know, your discussion here kind of reminds me of cancer as well. And I'll posit a question which is when it comes to diseases like obesity and cancer, should we be rethinking our framework for the disease versus the symptom, whereby obesity and cancer are actually the symptoms or the outcomes, right? And the disease are actually somehow genetically defined or some other set of factors that are heterogeneous? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. You know, obviously, obesity and inducing weight loss is a key goal of ours. And, you know, in turn, one hopes that has impacts on comorbidities and, you know, downstream effects that are uh, caused by obesity. But if we sort of move upstream and ask the question, what's the basic biological deficit in these patients? This revolves around, you know, control of appetite and control of energy expenditure. And so that's exactly what we see in, in some of these early onset patients and also, in fact, in preclinical models, is that it's the driving unrelenting hunger that's really the key aspect of this disease, which distinguishes it from other forms of obesity. And by focusing in on some of these other aspects of the disease, we can more carefully target the therapy, not only through the genetics, but also through careful clinical diagnosis of these patients. Early onset is another obvious feature to focus in on more genetic forms of a disease because, you know, one would expect typically for these to present early. But I think you're right. You know, I think what we're moving to longer term is sort of really parsing these diseases out into subforms that, you know, might have biochemical, genetic, or even clinical distinctions and refining our diagnosis you know, ultimately through, you know, more sophisticated clinical, 
you know, diagnostic procedures that will include genetics, but might not be restricted to genetics. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, maybe given that sort of overview, would love to hear from your experience and your perspective, rather, where do you sort of see biotech heading? There's obviously some really interesting cross currents that I think have been independently pursued, right? We talked about genomic sequencing, we talk about precision medicine, we talk about these newly defined sets of diseases, right? But are starting to converge to some degree. What do you foresee for the next, say, 10 years of medicine and precision medicine as a whole? In some ways, I see it as a continuum of the direction we've been going for a while now, which is really the notion of precision medicine, of, of really defining diseases on a molecular basis. I think on the one hand, the tools for doing that are improving, not just you know genetic testing and sequencing costs, but you know proteomics, metabolomics, really getting a molecular characterization of disease, not just descriptive. Disease. And as our ability to do that improves, so does our ability to carry out drug discovery and drug development programs that are really geared around those molecular definitions of disease. So I think you'll have a continuation of therapies that are at least initially developed in the context of uh, molecularly profiled diseases. You know, our example at Rhythm is MC4R pathway driven obesity in the largest sense. You know, over time, there will be other subdivisions of obesity or of other disease. There, there are other pathways involved. And I think it's in all our interest to develop sort of therapeutic options for each of these subtypes of disease, again, much in the way that, that sort of oncology and HIV is sort of pioneered. And I think that will spread to other disease indications then there's this next puzzle of how do you pull these different therapeutic options together to treat patients in a holistic way. I think that trend will continue. I think we need to improve our diagnosis of patients. I think, as I said, you know, lowering the barriers to access for testing so that we incorporate that in the healthcare system, you know, whether it's genome sequencing or whether it's you know, plasma profiling so that we can, you know, at the outset, at the, at the earliest stages of intervention, diagnose early in, in these sort of diagnostic odysseys. I think that's something we haven't yet touched on, but treating early can have a huge impact ultimately in the development of these diseases. So making sure the diagnosis is as early as possible is also key. So I, I see those trends continuing. I think, you know, there's obviously challenges in terms of how these are reimbursed, how you know, multi-modality treatments are, are reimbursed by healthcare systems, but I see the options increasing for patients, particularly in, in, the, in the rare disease space. Awesome. You know, with that, Patrick, we'd just love to thank you for joining us today on the podcast and sort of sharing both your background as well as sort of your view on this convergence of genomics and medicine. I think it's safe to say that we're just at the forefront of what the potential of those two fields are. And we're really keen to sort of see what you and the team at Rhythm pursue and hopefully some of the exciting medicines you're able to bring to market in the coming years. So with that, love to thank you again and, and hope to have you and the team on again soon. Well, thanks very much, Alok. We're super excited about uh, the potential at, at Rhythm and thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. 
Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.